I graduated on December 19th, 2009. December 21st, 2009, I was on a plane to Costa Rica. Uh, and when I arrived, I, because he was living in the hotel that he had bought and he was going to be building all these other buildings and I was going to be the project manager for all the construction that this guy was going to be developing in Costa Rica. I show up to the hotel. I told, you know, my family, my friends, everyone back in the States, like, love you all, graduated college, I'm moving to Costa Rica. Show up to the hotel and I see the woman who's behind the desk, which I saw a few weeks prior when I was there just to visit. And I go, where's Mike? I'm here. And she goes, no one told you? Like, what are you talking about? Mike died two weeks ago. And I didn't have a contract in place. I didn't have anything. And I had, I think, I don't know, $1,200 for my name or whatever it was at the time. It was not much. And I lit, I mean, she goes, I'll let you stay here tonight. But after that, I have to start charging you. And so what I thought was a plan was completely gone. Giovanni, you're a very well put together man. I mean, listener, you can't see Gio or if you're if you're watching the video, you might. But he has he in his pictures, he has a three piece suit, a clean shaven head and an exquisitely trimmed beard. But Gio, I have to ask you something. What do you think of bringing back the curls? I love the question because uh, I have probably this happens now a handful of times a year uh, when I'm working with medtech startups and the CEOs who I had a phone call with, a Zoom call with, whatever it may be, they'll send me the link or they'll send me a screenshot and be like, what is this? And it's me with all those curls on. And um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to get it out there and I, I'm going to speak as transparently as possible on this one and demystify that story. So... COVID had, had just set in and we all were working from home and, and in, we live in Florida. So we were known as that ultra liberal state when it came to COVID. So I think we had two and a half, three maximum weeks of what we really considered as a lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh, and then people were out and about and coming over people's houses after that. And it kind of loosened up pretty quickly down here, at least. Mm -hmm. So this was, I think, May-ish. May or June, something like that. But the world of podcasts being started by people who never had run podcasts before, et cetera, was just everyone had a podcast and running out of the woodworks with it. And my friend, who happened to live down the street, he's a high school teacher at Boca High. He wanted to start a podcast. And um, and it wasn't even one over Zoom. It was it was he wanted to do it in person. So he had all this microphone equipment, et cetera. But my friend isn't necessarily known for um, always being on time. And so, you know, that morning, it was a super hot day already in Florida. And he was telling me that he was going to be late. And I was just like, this may not even happen today. It's a Sunday. I'm going to go out and enjoy the Sunday with my wife. Um, and so it must have been June and it was super hot out. So we, we started walking around and it was a beautiful day and walking toward the beach and stuff. And there's this beer store and I'm like, Hey, let's go grab a few beers. And we went in there and so, you know, beer plus hot heat and sun doesn't always equal the best, yeah. best uh, idea. And so I get back home and it's just like a Sunday afternoon. I'm feeling great. I can answer the questions. I know what 
the, the questions are going to be, it's just going to be about life and inspiration and all that good stuff, which I, I believe I pulled off. Um, but before you even came over to the house, I I'm bald. So all of you who can't actually see me right now, and if you do see me on the video, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you'll realize I'm bald, but if you can't see me, I am bald. Um, and I have this collection of wigs at my house. I've, I've been through, um, all of, all of Halloween, I have a new wig. And so each year I have a new wig. And if you look at my closet, I have this collection of wigs and, you know, I had a few beers and it was fun. It was a Sunday afternoon and my friend wasn't over my house yet. And I ended, I, I put on, and I think one of my friends was watching a soccer game, which ultimately inspired me. And so I ended up getting this wig and I put it on and I completely forgot that I had it on. And my friend comes over for this podcast and I, and he's like, do you want to take off the wig? And, you know, I was first of all, and then I was like, no, I don't want to take off the wig. And, and I had, I think I even poured myself a glass of wine too. At the same time, and I'm telling a podcast to a group of high school students, or at least that's what it was meant for. And so I'm like, no, I'm going to leave the wig on. And I did this whole podcast and I thought it was audio. And I, this was like a best friend of mine. I mean, this is, imagine, you know, a guy best friend where you just, that's who it was. So I felt very comfortable and I left the huge froey curl wig on and I did this podcast. And when he released it, it was released with video. And apparently it went viral, which started off in the local community down here, um, which then brought up its SEO and, and then it brought itself really attached to my name. So if you Google my name, that's what ends up happening is showing up with me in this curly wig on. And now I have medical device CEOs about a handful of times a year screenshot me in a curly wig saying, is this you? And is this actually the person that I'm working with? And uh, that's my story. Well, I have to admit, it's, it's, a, it's a magnificent wig. <laughs> this is a magnificent wig. I mean, if I had that much fur above my shoulders between my beard, and once again, if you can't see me, I do have a big beard. I just have a bald head. Um, if I had that magnificent wig as real hair and my beard, um, I would be the firmest caveman out there and I would love it, but I don't. Well, I mean, I, I just have to look forward to uh, maybe future uh, times where we run together where you may or may not be uh, wearing that wig. And I really hope you do. But uh, <laughs> listener, uh, back on track. My name's Jeff and I'm the host of How It's Met, the podcast where we tell people who are shaping the future of healthcare. Uh, here we learn about the stories and secrets of the amazing people who are making it possible for everyone to live happier, healthier, longer life. With me today is the magnificently non-wigged today, Gio Loricella, co-founder and managing partner of Lifeblood Capital. And you've interviewed quite a few founders. So Gio, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Uh, today's a good day. And I had so far amazing conversations with significantly smarter people than I, which is what keeps me going. And nothing to complain about. Today's a good day. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're in a great mood because there's plenty that we got a deep dive into today. So, I mean, just to go straight into it, um, you're basically the guy who finds people and money for companies in health tech. Um, but you weren't always Mr. MedTech, again, referencing one of the podcasts that you've been on. Uh, in fact, you started in snowy Buffalo, New York. So what brought you down to Florida? Uh, snowy Buffalo, New York. That's um, so I, I was born and raised in Buffalo and, 
uh, I, my first day of high school, they gave this big inspirational speech where they said, you know, you have this next four years ahead of you and it's yours to win or lose. And whatever you do with this next four years allows you to know where you can go after that. Um, and if you get a scholarship to a university or you decide to get accepted into a university, it could be anywhere. And I was like, I can leave Buffalo. And so it was just my mission and goal. I put my head down. I mean, I was always a partier, by the way, but I was always that guy who could straddle both where my best friends were the all constantly in trouble people. Um, the ones that constantly tested their parents and the school system and all that, those were the people who I hung out with. Uh, but the pocket protecting nerds, four eyes, people who had pencils in their front pockets, all that stuff. That's who I hung out with from the morning until I got back on the school bus. And so I could actually structure both groups pretty well. And I always loved school. I mean, I, I loved partying, but I actually genuinely did love school. And so I just made it my mission that I was going to leave Buffalo at the end of the four years and I had an opportunity to get out. I will tell you, um, for all those who may either have a connection to Buffalo or currently in Buffalo who are listening to this or watching this, uh, I never looked back when I left Buffalo for years. Um, I, I went down to Miami and I didn't come back. Um, but what I will say is I have now since visited Buffalo and my family's still there. I mean, I, my immediate family's still there and I have never had more of a profound respect for Buffalo, New York. And if you ever go there, if you're a foodie, if you want architectural history, if you want to see the Niagara Falls, I mean, I can tell you that you could avoid it for a few months a year. Uh, so that's an obvious, we get a lot of snow and it's pretty gray, not great winters. Um, amazing summers, gorgeous autumns. And, you know, I have more respect for Buffalo now than I ever have. And uh, it was a great place to be born and raised. And a great place to go back to. Yeah. And I mean, you did eventually, as as you are in right now in Florida, make it out of Buffalo, New York, uh, but you did a finance degree. But then I was looking at your LinkedIn and you got this conspicuous gap in your education between 2009 and 2013. And you told me this fascinating story of what happened during those four-ish years off the air. Do you mind recounting some of what happened during that gap? Yeah. Ah, so... Graduated a semester early from university, did it in three and a half years, graduated in December 2009, which I was down here in Florida. And, you know, there has been, this is now January, 2023. Sorry if I'm dating the podcast, if that's okay. But it's January, 2023. And what I will tell you is um, I moved down here in 2006 and Florida was really, really known. I mean, Miami was still obviously a city, but Miami, South Florida was known for either retirement or heavily based on tourism. Obviously there's exceptions. There's societies that have existed on here for a while, but it, as a whole, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. It's not like the Bay area that you think of, or now Texas or Dallas or Boston or Chicago or New York. Um, but it was really like this tropical getaway where it was almost like Snowbirds came in November, snowbirds left in May, and what happened between May and November was almost a lot of nothing. And so outside of Miami, at least, going north. And ultimately, graduating in 2009 during the height of a massive recession, depression, 
there was no opportunity for even college graduates. And so my last semester of university, I had a very, very good friend of mine who I'd known throughout all of my university years. And so he was an older gentleman and he was looking to retire and he didn't know how. I was a finance major, as you had mentioned. I, my last summer, starting in May of 2009 until I think the mid of August, when right before I went back to my last semester, I locked myself in a room um, because my friend who wanted to look to retire had a guy who was a self-sustaining financial analyst and trader, self-taught. He was originally from China, actually. Brilliant human being. And that's how he made his living. He was just a day trader and made a lot of money doing so. And I was a finance major and I wanted to learn how to put my craft and, and my education to work. And he taught me how to read charts, financial charts. And I never really tried to do anything completely half-assed, to be honest, if I could say that on this podcast. So I'm either going to throw myself all the way in it or I'm not going to do it. And I'm very focused in whenever I do something. So I had nothing going on. I wasn't going back to Buffalo that summer. And I locked myself in a room in West Palm Beach for two and a half, three months. And I just studied and studied and studied and studied and studied all these financial charts. And I think it was the very beginning of August, uh, my friend, I, I still can't believe I'm even telling this because all these years later, I'm like, why would you ever do that? But he ended up giving me $50,000 to day trade on his behalf. What? In fact, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I thought it was so normal because I, I actually did see him a lot and spent a lot of time with him. And he was like a, a, an uncle, father figure, brother figure. He was everything. He was just, he was a really, really good, my, my, probably like one of my second major mentors after my papa. And, um, and so he, yeah, that's what he did. And he gave me this $50,000 account and he's like, go trade it. And I think it was like three weeks or something like that. Three weeks or it was, I know it was shy of a month, but it might've been closer to a month. I turned his $50,000 into over three quarters of a million. Oh. And, um, and it was just, it was, it was arduous day trading though. It was capitalizing on everything. It was, I don't, I definitely couldn't do it right now ever again, but it was ridiculous. And it was something I got out of a movie. And so he goes, I'm going to go, I'm going to go re uh, retire. And where do I go retire? I want to make sure all my money is capable of being stretched throughout the rest of my years. I mean, he was at that time, he was still in his very early fifties. Right? Still got a lot more time to go. And so he goes, I'm going to go retire, I think in Costa Rica. I'm like, okay, great. So we go down to Costa Rica and I end up going down there with him. Within three days, we were there for a week. Within three days, he realizes that he's not ever going to move to Costa Rica because it's significantly more Spanish speaking than he ever thought. He heard all these things about all these American expats moving to Costa Rica, et cetera. And he's like, where are they all? I mean, we met a few, but I can't speak Spanish and I'm not going to live here for the next 30 years of my life. And I'm, not, I'm too old to even learn speaking Spanish, so I'm not going to do it. So we just enjoyed the rest of the time. And I think it was the last night we were in town, we were at a bar and drinking. And he goes, I never really asked you how you turned 
$50,000 into three quarters of a million. I never even asked you. I just, we just did it and went on. How did you do it? And so I just started telling the story. And it was like, as soon as I finished telling the story, there was a guy behind me who actually was an American expat who at the time was living in the Philippines. He was a commercial builder. And he turns to me and he goes, would you ever move to Costa Rica and do you want a job? And I'm in the middle of a recession. I'm a finance major. I know that there's nothing waiting for me in Florida. And I said, yeah, I would. I would love to, and I would love to move to Costa Rica. And if that's my job, then I'll take it. So um, I graduated on December 19th, 2009. December 21st, 2009, I was on a plane to Costa Rica. Uh, and when I arrived, I, cause he had, was living in the hotel that he had bought and he was going to be building all these other buildings. And I was going to be the project manager for all the construction that this guy was going to be developing in Costa Rica. I show up to the hotel. I've told, you know, my family, my friends, everyone back in the States, like, love you all graduated college. I'm moving to Costa Rica. Show up to the hotel and I see the woman who's behind the desk, which I saw a few weeks prior when I was there just to visit. And I go, where's Mike? I'm here. And she goes, no one told you? Like, what are you talking about? Mike died two weeks ago. And I didn't have a contract in place. I didn't have anything. And I had, I think, I don't know, $1,200 for my name or whatever it was at the time. It was not much. And I lit, I mean, she goes, I'll let you stay here tonight. But after that, I have to start charging you. And so what I thought was a plan was completely gone. And um, there was a, a, a very famous expat bar that was maybe a five minute walk called the sportsman away from this hotel in downtown, um, the, 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 the capital of, of Costa Rica, which of course, right now I'm telling you the story and I live there. I'm blanking on right now. Ten one. I'm forgetting. Anyway. Um, and I run into one of the guys that Mike, the guy who died had introduced to me previously. And this guy was an expat from Seattle and he was running a nonprofit company living in Costa Rica. I think at the time it was already like four or five years that he was there. And I tell him this crazy story and he goes, I can't pay you, but I can give you room and board. I, I live in this place up in the mountains up in Heredia. Um, and if you want to stay and have a job and I can give you experience, I just can't pay you and I'll, I'll even feed you. And I'm like, I'm not going back home. And this sounds like at least like something to keep me here for a little while. Let's figure it out. I did that for six months. I showed up to work one day and it was an amazing experience, by the way. I mean, I got to travel all over Costa Rica. I got to meet the president of Costa Rica. Um, we were helping out preserve the natural ecosystems within Costa Rica. And we did all these partnerships with Indonesia and other rain, oh, the, the Brazilian rainforests, et cetera. So that's what we were doing. It was really interesting. And then, um, one day I show up to work like I normally do, and that guy disappeared, and I never saw him again. I'm like, what? I'm not supposed to be here. I got to go back home. So I go back home. I go to my parents' condo in West Palm Beach, and there's a friend who I knew there previously for me moving to Costa Rica, who was from Colombia, and we started a company fast-forwarding a bunch. I went down to Colombia. We started this company, which was in medical tourism. I'll make this story much shorter than I that I was planning on, um, we ended up creating this company. We needed approval by the Colombian health cluster. And it was like out of a movie. Um, 
I pitched the company and then someone walked over the door in Medellin, Colombia and locked the door and then said, we're buying your company. Um, you're not going to launch it. We're going to launch it. And then there's no negotiating power at that point. I mean, I'm like, okay. Um, they wrote me a check for $20,000 and they bought me an airplane ticket back. And that was my Colombian story. So then now I'm like, okay, Central and South America, I played that out. I'm good. I'm in West Palm. This is now sometime in late 2000 and that was early 2011. Um, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing now. I mean, I, I, and I love cool. So I said, okay, fine. We're still somewhat in the recession. It's not a lot of great opportunities. Still in Florida, I've had these experiences over the past year and a half-ish. Um, I'm going to apply to University of Miami and get my PhD. I got accepted into Miami for my PhD in international economics. And the program didn't start for like five or six months. So I'm like, do what you love. What do you love? I thought I love coffee. So I ended up working at the West Palm Beach Starbucks and Rod Stewart used to show up regularly and I would make Rod Stewart a latte. And I thought this was a very temporary situation because I was going to do my PhD. I thought I had my next five years of my life locked up. And about a month and a half before I started my PhD program, I got a letter in the mail saying that because of the recession, depression, whatever you want to call it, the International School of Political, you know, the Economic School and the Political Science School didn't merge, so they didn't have a stipend for me. And I was more than glad to continue with my PhD, but I had to pay for it. And I said, I'm already in bachelor debt. Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'm going to now have to actually get a job. Speaking as candid and transparently as possible, I was now alone in West Palm Beach. I had all my options taken away from me and I had a bachelor's degree and I'm working at Starbucks and don't want to do that anymore. And I got somewhat intoxicated that night, put together a resume, spammed it on Craigslist. And the next morning I got a phone call from my previous firm that I was at for almost 12 years. And um, they pitched me on what they were doing. It started interesting. I joined. And the rest was history. And that's how I joined the medical device industry. You've basically lived a couple of lives already before you joined the medtech industry. That's actually fascinating. I guess in all of that, has that given you, uh, I guess, perspective or a reason to stick with medtech? Or has have those previous experiences just been like, okay, well, I'm done with living life that hard now. I'm just going to stick with this one thing and master it for what's been more than a decade now? Uh. So I ended up joining technically the medical device industry when I was 23 years old. So all yep. that very long story that I just shared happened in a fairly short amount of time, actually, in retrospect. And I was also incredibly young. So when I joined, I was 23 when I joined the medical device industry. It was an almost immediate obsession. It was certainly an immediate love. And then going back to my love for school, I was in the industry for two years before I wanted to go back to school in some fashion. I didn't want to give up what I was doing. I wanted to do a degree on the side. And so I thought, okay, fine, makes sense. I'm, what was it now? I'm 23 years old. So I was 20, almost 25 at the time, I guess. And so 
I said, I'm going to go get an MBA, right? That's what people do, I guess, when you're in business and, you know, I guess so. I guess so. So, but I got talked out of it. And people are like, you're still really young. I mean, I understand if you did an MBA that was associated and tacked on right to your bachelor's, but it's not, you're still really young. You have a couple of years of experience. My firm was like, I'm not paying for your MBA. This is not one of those companies. So if you are doing an MBA, it's out of your own pocket. And so I started getting some feedback being like, do you really want to invest a quarter million dollars into something that you're probably going to get a lot more out of when you're five or maybe 10 years older? So like, fair point. I'll listen. And I didn't get an MBA, but I still wanted to go to school. And then I said, well, what degree could I possibly get that would keep me entertained, but also even augment or help me out with my current career? And so I found the master's degree with a focal point in medical device coming from Northeastern University up in Boston. And then you could do it online and remote, but you can go back and forth. And um, that's what I did. And so I said, well, regulatory, and now I fast forward through the degree. I have an amazing appreciation for regulatory affairs professionals. Because honestly, regulations hits every facet of every function of a medical device company or a medical device technology. So what regulations you're aware of from an R&D perspective, design history files and everything else that needs to be in place from a regulatory standpoint, which is quality assurance and then clinical trials and then manufacturing and, and then even sales, you know, there's regulations that apply to all these different functions. So if you understand regulatory affairs, you fundamentally have a greater insight as to how it controls or influences every facet of a product's life cycle based on, once again, R&D through commercialization. And so I'm like, oh, fine, that's like my one-stop shop. I, cause actually what I did ultimately try to do before doing that, uh, regulatory affairs degree was actually see if I can get an engineering degree. Cause I have a love for engineering, maybe in my next life, not this life, but engineering cool. I love engineering. And uh, I decided that I wanted to pursue an engineering degree, but couldn't, I found out that between the labs and everything else, I couldn't have a full-time job and do that. So I was doing, you know, 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. with my job. And then I would go home and walk my dog and then do my master's from 8 until 11 o'clock at night and then do it all over again. And I did that for two and a half years and then had an amazing appreciation for regulatory affairs in the medical device industry, which even further augmented my love for the industry and, uh, fast forward a bunch of, a lot of stuff. I'm never leaving this industry. You'd have to drag me out kicking and screaming. Why do you love it so much? Oh man. Um, so if you haven't figured out already, I'm very direct and transparent and things like that. So it came from what I love, but you know, blue collar family, right? I mean, not too many people in my family went to university. And wildly successful as entrepreneurs themselves. So I came from an entrepreneurial family. My, my family owned hair salons. Um, you wouldn't know it cause I'm bald, but you know, my grandfather to this day still has a full head of hair. My father has a full head of hair. I don't know what happened to me, but anyway, they're hairstylists and they're, they're very successful, wildly hair, wildly successful hairstylists, as well as salon owners. So, you know, I grew up sweeping the floors and all that stuff, but I, I know what elbow grease looks and feels like. So 
why stay in? Um, you know, coming from a fairly blue collar background and then entering into a world where everyone at a minimum has a degree, most people have multiple degrees. There's regulatory facets, there's clinical trials, medical devices are an iterative technology sector versus a binary technology sector with biopharma, it either works or it doesn't. There's constant iterations happening, which means it's constantly evolving, which means it's constantly getting better, hopefully, fingers crossed. This is one of those things where if you're a lover of learning, a lover of education, and you're constantly seeking a destination, meaning, you know, you want to learn it all. And then once you get there, maybe you have the luxury of trying to learn something else. You will constantly be chasing your own carrot in this industry, whether it's entrepreneurship, clinical, class three devices, the difference between class three and class one devices, software as a medical device, surgical robotics, implantable neuromodulation, transcatheter heart valves versus surgical heart valves. How to commercialize outside the United States. What's the regulatory strategy that saves capital and time on investing into a company that's ultimately going to lead to a potential successful exit? And who are the strategics going to buy it? On and on and on and on and on. There is an unlimited, seemingly unlimited facets, amount of facets in this industry. And there's so much information that you could possibly learn and you'll never learn it all. So you'll always be chasing your carrot. And if you're a lover of education and learning and a student of life and a forever student, and you happen to like cool technology that saves lives, tell me a better industry to be in. You've sold me on it. What's the name of the university again? <laughs> university of Life. University of Life and Clinical Device University. All right. All right. Well, I, I, I got I to gotta look into those degrees because that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. I mean... Oh. The university that I got my medical Yes, life, yes. North, Northeastern. So at, okay. this, at the, when the time that I did it, it came on, it, I don't want to say it was new. It was around for maybe a few years-ish, but not many. But there was a very select few of, of universities that were offering a regulatory affairs master's. Yeah, yeah. There was, well, I think, one out of Southern California, Boston. But there was very, very, very few. I think certainly less than a handful. At this point, you'll find more universities offering masters of regulatory affairs. However, if anyone loves the medical device industry, and you could do it in life science as well. Um, I just chose the major focal track. You have to learn biotech, pharma, and medical device, but you can focus in one as you continue to do your classes. I chose medical devices because that's my industry that I chose to want to be in. Uh, you can choose one of the other two as well, or three. So anyway. I did mine at Northeastern University of Boston, and I happen to have a huge love of Boston because basically Boston is Buffalo on steroids. So I feel like I'm home when I'm there too. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.